there are, there are some things that are just sometimes hard to say. Things like, you know, especially if you're married, you have plenty of opportunity to say this. Honey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's a humbling thing to, to say, yet something we, we need to say probably more frequently than we do. Uh, you've probably seen the meme before that talks about the hardest things to say in the English language, like, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And then the next thing is Worcestershire sauce. Uh, I'm not even sure if I said it right just now. But you know, one of those things that is actually difficult to say and truly mean are those two words, thank you. Okay, it's one thing to just sort of say it as a nicety without thinking about it. You know, you're at the cash register and the, the cashier helps you, hey, thank you so much. But we're not really saying, I so appreciate what you've done, because here, here's how we know that. When the cashier doesn't quite get the job right, we're sort of outraged that they didn't deliver what they were supposed to deliver. We sort of understand that they're giving a service, we're paying, and that sort of thing. To truly say, thank you, that you've done something for me that, that, that I didn't expect, that I didn't deserve, can be pretty hard and humbling to, to recognize and to utter. Sometimes it's just little more than a nicety as we come to Thanksgiving to just sort of thank you, God, for all of your blessings. And we, we feel that for a day or two. And then we go back to sort of feeling entitled, sort of feeling like, well, everything I have, God sort of does owe me a fair shake in life. And I kind of deserve better than what I'm getting. And we go back to sort of our, the, the, the rut of not truly feeling grateful. You see, real gratitude acknowledges a gift. Even think of the word gratuity. Okay, you're, you're giving something gratuity freely. Gratitude is recognizing that what you did for me, you didn't actually have to do for me. And there's not really any way for me to pay it back except to say thank you, to express that, wow, what you've done was so undeserved, so surprising. So think about this. When your, your employer gives you a paycheck at the end of the month that you worked 40 hours, he agreed to pay you so many dollars an hour for your work, you don't, you don't just come fawning at his feet, oh, thank you so much for paying me this month. Let me send you a thank you note for that. You understand those are wages that he gives you, and that was the expectation. I worked, he paid me. There wasn't, there's not something that is sort of a, a gift or generosity beyond that. But when we say thank you, we're recognizing there was a gift, something given that we, we really don't deserve. Think about other languages. Uh, Spanish, gracias, you can hear the word grace a favor, something that was done that wasn't deserved, or in, in French, mercy. You hear the word mercy that is, that is in that. The whole idea of gratitude or thanksgiving is recognizing there was a gift given that I don't deserve. It's more than just a social nicety. It is a recognition that, wow. So come into Thanksgiving week. Come into our Tuesday service to, to, to share praises for what God has done. Gather together with family, friends on Thursday and enjoy a meal. It's about much more than the meal, we understand. About saying thank you to God, recognizing that everything we have from him is, is a gift. True gratitude arises from the reception and the appreci appreciation of a gift as a gift, recognizing we didn't deserve it. You see, if you think you're owed, you won't be grateful. That's why gratitude is one of the most important attitudes for the Christian to develop in their life. It is one of the most important activities that we as believers engage in. It strikes right at the heart of the gospel. Think about what the gospel message is. I'm a sinner who does not deserve God's mercy or his forgiveness, and God has forgiven me freely just out of the sheer generosity of his heart. And so I say thank you because I precisely did not deserve it. Gratitude gets right at the heart of understanding the gospel. That, by the way, is why in Romans 1, the slide down into depravity begins with neither were thankful. Begin to think God owes me, that, that I, I, get a, I deserve a better shake in life than, than what I'm getting. It's a profoundly anti-gospel attitude to have. Getting to this point of recognizing what we have from God we don't deserve, we got as a gift, and we cast ourselves before God in just sheer gratitude, appreciation for what he has done. Let me say it just differently, sort of negatively. Why is it that we don't have gratitude in our hearts? What sort of, sort of stops up the flow of gratitude, as it were, from our hearts? couple of things that could block it up. One of them is entitled. One of the ways is we don't actually see God as the source of our gifts. We think, well, why would I thank God for the paycheck that I got? Because I went out and worked. I did that. We don't see him as the giver. We see ourselves as the source of our blessings. And sometimes we just don't want to acknowledge that I'm in someone else's debt. We're sort of, I did that myself. I don't need your help. Thank you very much. Or sort of, I did that. I'm independent, auto autonomous. Psalm 65 
sort of tackles all four of these challenges to gratitude, entitlement, uh, the, 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 um, the idea that I'm the source of my blessings, the idea that I can do it on my own. It tackles all of these and shows us how we ought to express gratitude to God. So say it positively. This psalm is going to lay out four beliefs, things that we ought to believe in the very depths of our souls. Four beliefs that give rise to gratitude. If you believe these four, these four statements that come out, bubble up out of Psalm 65, gratitude will be the natural overflow. It won't be something that I have to sort of, sort of, sort of turn a crank and try to make it come out on, on Thanksgiving Day, but it will just naturally overflow from our hearts with these four beliefs. Let's read Psalm 65 before we dive into these. Psalm 65 says, To the chief musician, a psalm and song of David. So, so imagine... This is accompanied by, by music and people gathering together to sing, to sing this. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. By terrible things or, or awesome things or things that bring, us, bring about fear and wonder. In righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of them that are afar off upon the sea, which by his strength setteth fast the mountains, being girded with power, which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. Thou markest the outgoings of the morning and the evening, or thou makest the outgoings of the morning and the evening to rejoice. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn or, or grain when thou hast so provided for it. Thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly. Thou settlest the furrows thereof. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness. They drop upon the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered over with corn. They shout for joy. They also sing. This is such a beautiful psalm of of thanksgiving to God, where, now what beautiful hymns we sang earlier today, but they sort of pale in comparison to the richness and the beauty of the, the poetry that's here, the, the image at the end of the psalm, I love it, of the, the hills and the, and the fields sort of singing to God and cl being clothed with, with foliage and growth. All the creation celebrating the blessing and the goodness of God. Now this sort of divides up into three chunks. The first four verses celebrate God's pardon that he gives to his people, the relationship we have with God. Then verses 5 to 8 sort of celebrate God's power and what is on display in the creation. And then verse 9 reflects on God's provision, right? The, the, the rain that he sends and the crops that grow, and therefore the meals that we get that come as a result of those crops growing, all of that comes from, from God. So let's just start working our way through this. What are the, the beliefs? What are the things that we need to truly believe that are, that are going to give rise to gratitude? The first one is this. We don't deserve it. Talk about God's pardon here in verses 1, 2, and 3. We don't deserve it. This is going to attack that, that sin of entitlement, that idea that, well, I'm owed something better, and what I get from God is really my due. Verse 1 says, praise waiteth for thee, O God. Okay, that word waiteth is silent. Is Praise is silent for you. It's almost like all the people have gathered together in Jerusalem for one of the, the annual festivals. Let's say the you know, Yom Kippur, or they've gathered together for ingathering, or one of the various festivals, maybe one of the harvest fall uh, fall festivals that they celebrated, not like our fall festival, but religious festivals and celebrations they would have. They've all gathered together, and all the people are there, and the nation is uh, there at the temple, on Temple Mount, and the Levitical choirs are ready to sing, and the shofars are lifted to the lips, and there's this silence before the praise just explodes. It's like God, it's sort of, it's sort of pent up, and we've all come together, and the praise is ready to just, to just spew out. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. That's a reference to Jerusalem as God's people have gathered together. And unto thee shall the vow be performed. The idea there is throughout the year, maybe God's people had said, 
God, we desperately need rain for our crops to survive. If you bring rain and my crops survive, I, I will bring a thanks offering to you at next time in Jerusalem. And God does it, and so the vows are delivered to him. Or someone may have vowed to God, God, if you deliver me from my enemies, I will offer a thanks offering to you next time I'm in Jerusalem. An expression of, of gratitude. So this is a beautiful picture of what Thanksgiving should be like, that just praise ready to bubble up from our hearts when we gather, when, we're, when we are alone. But nothing will kill that sense more than feeling like I'm entitled. I'm entitled. Why should I send a thank you note if someone did something that they were supposed to do for me? People who think they're owed special treatment are usually very ungrateful, and let's be honest, pretty unpleasant to be around. But verse 1 is the opposite of that. This is Thanksgiving that arises from a heart that doesn't feel entitled, that feels in awe of the grace and the kindness and the generosity of God. You see, when I feel like I'm entitled to a three-week vacation paid, peace and quiet every evening, good health and and the latest technology, when I don't get those things, I'll sort of be, when I recognize, listen, all I deserve is the wrath of God and everything I have is better than what I deserve, I'll have gratitude. Verse 2 goes on, O thou that hearest prayers, unto thee shall all flesh come. What, what is this, this thanksgiving fueled by? The sense that God heard my prayers. How stunning is that? Now we take it for granted that, well, God wants me to pray to him, and I'm sort of doing God a favor by praying. No, it's the opposite. The, the, the ability to come to God with our prayers, what a gift. What an undeserved privilege to be able to draw near to him in prayer. He's under no obligation to do so. Every answered prayer is a gift. It's like getting in a $1,000 tip when you weren't even waiting at that particular table. Every prayer that God answers. It's like getting a present when it's not even your birthday. Now, the backdrop to all of this is Solomon's famous temple prayer that you can read about in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Solomon dedicates the temple to, to, to the service of God, and, and he prays. He says, okay, God, um, if we sin against you, and you bring the covenant curses that you said you would bring, say the rain stops. We're not getting rain. There's drought because of our sin, your judgment upon us. Since God, if we pray to you who dwells in heaven, if we turn our hearts to this place and we confess our sin, would you please hear from heaven and restore us? That seems to be what is going on here in Psalm 65, this reference at the end of the psalm to rain. Oh, God, you've sent the rain and the crops are growing. And the reference at the beginning of the psalm to confessing sin seems to say that the two are linked, that the nation perhaps has sinned against God, they've rebelled against God, he has withdrawn his blessing. They have turned to him in prayer and in confession, and God has once again opened the floodgates of the rain and, by extension, of his blessing. It says, God, you have heard us when we have come to you even in our sin. Now, I love the end of verse 2. Unto thee shall all flesh come. This is a recognition, even in the Old Testament, that God's heart is not just for Israel, but is for the nations. God's heart is not just for you and me, but is for sinners worldwide. The the, the, the sense we get from the gospel, from Genesis to Revelation, is that God is desiring a global people to worship and to know Him. He's a God who says, whosoever will may come. He's a God who desires people, no matter their background, no matter who you are, to come to him. The door has been thrown open by the the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you would come. So to you shall all flesh come. Now, this is not saying that everybody is going to get saved, but it is to say that the doorway is open for all. And when human history is done, we get the scene painted in Revelation 7, where there's people of every nation, tongue, and ethnic group, and, and background, all before the throne of God. We're going to be in heaven one day with representatives from every nation group, every people group on the planet. Verse 3, okay, the reason why they have had to pray to God is because of sin. Iniquities prevail against me. It's perhaps the reason why the rain has been withheld, as Solomon talked about. Now, the, the sense here is literally words of iniquity. It's almost like, man, the, uh, when I start listing out the things that I need to confess to God, the ways that we have sinned against Him, the list is overwhelmingly long. You feel that in your heart, that, I, that I'm a sinner. It, the sin is not just sort of, eh, it's nibbled away a little bit and, and, and gotten a few points here, but man, it's absolutely steamrolling me. This confession here, sin, iniquities have prevailed against me. Let's be honest. 
Uh, we, we sang just a minute ago, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Sometimes we don't really feel that excited about it because we have forgotten how lost we were. We have forgotten how lost we would be without God's grace. We forget completely that we, without Jesus, we're drowning in sin. Hey, without Jesus, it's not like you're standing in the shallow end of the pool up to sort of your waist and I'm doing okay. Without Jesus, you're out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico and you don't know how to swim. That's more your condition without Christ. Without Christ, sin has completely and utterly defeated us. It has dominated us. There's no way out. The way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 is we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Sin is compared to slavery. It's compared to blindness. It's compared to, to death. Like just an absolutely absolute state of complete helplessness. You cannot save yourself. You cannot deliver yourself. You cannot deal with your own sins by sort of doing good things. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, that's sort of a synonym, ways we've wronged God, thou shalt purge them away. This is stunning. In the Hebrew, the, um, the pronoun thou, as for our iniquities, you, you have purged them away. Yahweh, the holy God of heaven, the one who doesn't owe us this forgiveness, has completely and utterly forgiven our sin. He's purged it away. He's washed it away by the blood of his own son. You see, if I were to come to you and say, hey, thanks for coming over yesterday, that could convey any number of levels of, of gratitude, like, hey, thanks for stopping by, or, or whatever the case may be. It doesn't sort of say, man, I am absolutely gobsmacked by your generosity to me. If, however, you happen to be a firefighter, and you came over to my house yesterday, and my house was in flames, and you came running in through the door where the house was on fire, and you pulled me unconscious out of the living room, did CPR on me, and saved my life. When I say, thanks for coming over yesterday, that carries a whole lot more weight. When we say, thank you, God, for saving my soul, and we understand the house was on fire, and I was on my way to being dead on the, the, the kitchen floor, man, that means so much more. The more I can recognize the plight from which I was rescued, the more genuine will be my thanksgiving to God. That carries weight. That expresses deep gratitude. The more I recognize that I was helpless and hopeless without Christ, the more grateful I will be. I mean, maybe you're here today. I don't know everyone's spiritual condition here. I can't peer into your heart. But you're still in the burning house, so to speak. You're still trapped in your sin. You're still trying to, trying to deal with your sin on your own. Oh, run to Christ. He is the one who hears prayer. He is the one who beckons you to come to him for forgiveness. Now, here's the point. None of this is deserved. There's not some immutable law of the universe that God has to forgive. God forgives freely, meaning there, there's no compulsion upon him. There's no external pressure upon him. There's no sort of necessity and fate of the universe that requires him to do so. He's doing this totally and utterly freely. Right, that's sort of the difference between sort of like forced charity and free charity. If I'm required to engage in charity, it's not really charity, right? It's just like people are taking my money and giving it to someone else that I might not have wanted to give it to. But if I open my own wallet and give it, that means so much more. God is under no obligation. You know, well, I have to do this. He does it freely, which means this. I didn't earn my pardon. I didn't earn God's favor. And I just step back and say, you have purged away my iniquity. I didn't deserve it. There's no entitlement there. When I recognize what I really deserve from God is his wrath. What I really deserve from God is his justice. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. So when we look at God's pardon, which is the greatest of his gifts, we recognize we don't deserve it. That's a belief. If you can really believe in your heart, I don't deserve it, and I'm not just saying the phrase because that's sort of what good Christians say, but I really believe that down in the depths of my soul, that'll give rise to thanksgiving. That'll give rise to gratitude rather than grumbling. But there's a second reality here in verse 4. I'm just splitting this out. It sort of belongs to verse 1 to 3, but this is sort of going up a stair step to this, this crescendo here in verse 4. Blessed is the one whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. 
we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house. Here we see God's house, his dwelling place. He's talking here about the temple, but the place where God revealed his presence. So we see here this, 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 this second, second belief is with God's presence, we don't actually need anything else to have contentment. Notice that word at the beginning of verse 4, if you like to circle words, that word blessed, and then in the second half of verse 4, that word satisfied. They sort of go together. Like the, the person who has a relationship with God, the person who dwells in God's presence, who has an abiding relationship with Christ, that person is blessed. That person is satisfied. Satisfied, what a great word. That's more than just, oh, yeah, I'm getting by, but it's a, man, I just ate, you know, way too much turkey, and I'm full, and I'm going to go take a nap on the couch while the football game is playing. Satisfied. It's, it's sort of, I, I have all that I need, and then some, and I need nothing else. That's what is being described in verse 4. It says, blessed is the man. And see, I, I would say one of our biggest hindrances, perhaps the biggest hindrance to being grateful, is discontent. And we've got an entire sort of system, economic system, that is designed to elevate your sense of discontent. Like, you, you're, you were perfectly happy 20 years ago without a smartphone. Right? Now, imagine not having your smartphone and then trying to find your way to someone's house after church. Like, you didn't know you needed it until Apple kind of convinced you, you need it, right? And, and I'm not knocking smartphones, love my smartphone. But the point being is, I was content, and then, you know, we come along with ads and see what everyone else has in comparison. I realize, hmm, I really need this thing to be content to really be able to do well in, in, in life. Uh, just pay attention sometimes when the commercials are going. Just be like, okay, let me sort of unplug, let me analyze a little bit. What is the discontent that they're trying to sell me? Man, you need to buy this beauty product. You're not content with the way you look. Buy this beauty product, and then you will be content with the way you look, and you have all these friends, and you'll be dancing through the meadows with unicorns. It'll be great. Uh, there's so much in our society, in our culture, that is simply trying to stir up discontent in your heart so you go buy stuff. We get convinced we need a new gadget. People get convinced, man, I, to really be content, I need Taylor Swift tickets or a new streaming service or a better vacuum cleaner or a newer F-150 to be really content and satisfied. The reality, of course, is you're always changing the, chasing the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You never quite can get there. You're always sort of on the hamster wheel, never quite getting the, the carrot on the end of the stick in front of you. Solomon got it, said it really well. He says, the one who loves silver will never have enough silver. Say, I'm only going to be happy if I have X, Y, or Z. You'll never have enough X, Y, or Z to truly be happy. It just doesn't work that way. So what is David driving at here in verse 4? Relationship with God. That's what it is to be blessed. Blessing isn't found in having more, but in having God. Blessed speaks of the state of delight, of satisfaction. It says, who's the one who's blessed? The one that God has chosen, the one who God has drawn to himself, the one who is dwelling in God's presence. Simply the, the one who has a saving relationship with God through Christ. And we all know this. When you came to faith in Jesus, when you look back to your conversion, you don't say, look at how I saved myself. We look back and say, we love him because he what first loved us. I was drawn to him because he drew me. I chose him because he chose me. That's what verse 4 is driving at. Now, it's not taking out of the equation the importance of, of man's response to the gospel as if you're just sort of like walking like a robot to God, God lovingly through the gospel. But notice the point is you dwell in the courts of God. It's like that's the person who's happy, the person who dwells in God's courts. He saved us so we would be close to him. God did not just save you so you'd make it to heaven one day. God saved you that even now you would enjoy God. Think of Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, okay, forgiveness, that's what verse 3 here is talking about. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 4 talks about drawing near. Romans 5, 2, through whom also we have access into this grace wherein we stand, this is amazing. The faith that saves us not only gets us in a right relationship with God, but opens the door so we can go into God's throne room anytime. Access into his presence. Imagine if you had sort of in your contacts and you could text or call anytime. I don't know. Let's think of some powerful people. The CEO of, of Apple, 
and throw a Microsoft in there for those of you who aren't Apple people, uh, the President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, the Governor of the State of Alabama, and anyone else who you think is an important person, Nick Saban. You're like, man, I got them anytime. I'll text. They'll text me back right away. They won't just sort of like ignore my texts. When I call, they'll pick up. You'd be like, man, I'm a pretty important person if I have the ear of the most powerful people in the world. Okay, none of us do, as far as I know. If you do, let me know. I've got some things I'd like to pass on to some of those people, some governing advice, that kind of thing. We have the ear of the God of heaven. To be able to come into his presence, to come boldly, to speak candidly to him, to unburden our souls to him, one who is infinitely more powerful than all of the power and the might of the most powerful people in the world, says, hey, you're my child. You can come. You can just walk right into my office. You can crawl right up into my lap. You can share anything that is going on, and I'll hear, and I will respond. That is pretty awesome. God's presence, you've got that. Man, what else do you need? Is that MasterCard? What else do you need? Like, you're blessed, you're satisfied. Unlike any product that you buy, a relationship with God has a 100% satisfaction guaranteed seal upon it. Now, in the temple context that David's referring to, the worshipers would often enjoy part of the offering, depending on which type of offering it was. They would enjoy that in a feast with the priest. It wasn't just sacrifice, watch your, your, your sheep burn up and it's over. Some of these offerings, they would take the best cuts of the meat and you would sit down with the priest and have a great feast. So literally, satisfaction with the goodness of your house. Like, you're going to leave the temple courts being like, my relationship with God is where it needs to be. My stomach is full of the best food that I've had all year. And we're going to hang out here in Jerusalem for a while. It's just good. By the way, many of the festivals that, uh, that they had in Israel were eight-day mandated vacations for the whole country. Uh, a lot of people don't, you know, don't ever take time off. It was mandated eight days. By the way, you know there's studies that show the ideal length for a vacation is eight days. Anything longer than that, like the return on the vacation is not as, you know, as useful. It sort of peaks out at seven to eight days. Sort of maybe God was onto something. So you're in the middle of an eight-day vacation, eating all of this good food, hanging out in the temple. Relationship with God is where it needs to be. You're getting together with, with friends and family, the nation, and singing and celebrating. Man, that satisfaction. What a symbol. What a powerful visual reminder of a right relationship with God. God is so glorious. God is so majestic that his promises and his presence bring eternal satisfaction and joy to his people. You know what we'll do for all eternity? We will rejoice and delight in God, and it will never get old. A right relationship with God is more satisfying than anything else. You know, one of the signs I believe that you have been genuinely saved is that you enjoy God. Just enjoy God. No, you don't live a perfect, sinless life, and there's times where you are snared away with the pleasures of sin for a season. But if your heart has been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus, you've been born again, you have, you've been made a partaker of the divine nature, for you not to, in some sense, enjoy God would just be absolute craziness. Do, do you enjoy him? Do you, do, do you long to be in his presence? Christians, one who's come to God in faith, and as a result of coming to God in faith, has found God not only to be the answer to sin, but to be the solution to longing, to be the object of worship. So are you, let me just ask the question, are you discontent? You're just thinking, well, I've got to get this thing, and I need that other thing, and man, if I could have this sort of relational piece together in my life, everything would be good. It's not bad to have ambitions to want to improve our, our lot in life. It's not what I'm saying. But where is your joy state? Is it found in, in your presence as fullness of joy at thy right hand or pleasures forevermore? Or is it in a new truck is pleasures forevermore? Guess what? That truck's going to wear down, break down. The insurance will cost way more than you expected. And next year, a better one will come out. And you'll realize the one you have is last year's model. Only in God do you find one who is infinitely good, who never changes, who never goes out of style, who will always be faithful. 
So where does gratitude come from? It arises from believing, I don't deserve anything from God, and yet he's given me pardon. It's recognizing and believing that when I have God, there's not anything else that I ultimately need. Yeah, I mean, I need food and clothing to survive, but for, 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 for joy and for blessing and for satisfaction, God is the ultimate gift and giver. But there's a third realization. And we see this realization in verses 5 to 8 as the, as the psalm focuses now on God's power. I said at the outset, you know, if my attitude is, why would I thank you? I did it all myself, right? If the idea is, I don't need your help, thank you very much, I don't ask for direction, so why would I say thank you for something that I'm going to take all the credit for? Verses 5 to 8 just smashes that idea to smithereens. By terrible things in righteousness will thou answer us, O God of our salvation. So God is the deliverer. He is the rescuer. We couldn't do that ourselves. And then we get all these describers of God. You're the confidence of all the ends of the earth, of them that are afar off upon the sea. I think this is really interesting in this psalm, that yes, as God's people gathered in Jerusalem, there's very much a missionary mindset that is here. It's not just about us. It's not just about you know, sort, of, sort of this small group of people. No, those are at the ends of the earth. The nations who don't yet know him. So he's a God who saves us. A God who displays his power, setting everything right. He's confidence of all the ends of the earth, which by his strength setteth fast the mountains. Anybody out there any good at building mountains? Like, I don't mean like, oh, yeah, we piled up some sand in the backyard for the grandkids. I mean like the Rocky Mountains kind of mountains. Anybody out there like, yeah, I'll take that one on. Any engineers who would have the audacity to say, let's make a mountain higher than Mount Everest, just sort of with our ingenuity, we can't do it. We never will. It says, yeah, God by his strength and nothing else. God wasn't like, oh, hey, I need some help over here. Okay, can we get, get a hand from these other deities? No, God by his own strength established the mountains. That's astounding. Verse Seven, which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of the waves, the tumult of the people. we got a God who establishes mountains and stills seas. Uh, to someone living in, in Israel, think about David. You look out at the mountains, every day you get up, there's that mountain again. You get up the next day, there it is again. It was there when your grandparents were there. It'll be there when your grandkids are there. It's, it, it, it epitomizes stability. It's like, hey, the most stable thing is the mountains. Yet the most chaotic thing are the oceans, right? Just by churning and up and down and waves, and none of us can make the ocean stop churning around. It's just within the property of water to sort of slosh around and make waves. He's taking from either end of the spectrum, from the most stable, unchanging realities, mountains, to the most unstable, uncontrollable realities, sloshing oceans, saying, God rules over both. You can't do that. I can't do that. There's a recognition here when we look at a mountain that I can't create or a storm that I cannot still to recognize that and I am far more dependent on God than I like to admit. That, that's what this brings us to is, is something as basic as making the rain stop I can't do. Why do I think that I can do a bunch of other things? We are completely dependent on him. Or as, or as Paul puts it in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. No matter how rich you are, you can't make mountains or stop storms. It doesn't matter how important you might feel that you are, how long you've been planning that weekend fishing trip, it can be wrecked by a storm whipping across the bay. And you know, we often feel, never feel more helpless than when we are thwarted by creation. You're sort of there at the mercy of the waves or the weather. Like, man, I'm, I'm pretty small. I'm dependent. I'm needy. Even thinking storms in a more metaphorical sense, thank God for the storms that remind you of your limits. Our limits are, are, are much tighter than, than we like to think, because we, we do so much without thinking about God. The fact of the matter that probably tonight most of you will turn into effectively a sack of rocks for eight hours is a daily reminder that you're not God. You're going to go to bed. You're going to be completely comatose for eight hours, hopefully. Some of you would like operate on three hours of sleep. I don't know how you do it. And the earth will still spin on its axis. The sun will still come up tomorrow to remind you that you don't run the universe. God is God. You're not. 
Most of you will have to eat at some point in the next 24 hours. You'll need to drink in the next 24 hours. We can hardly go a day without fueling our bodies. What a reminder that we are powerless and God is all-powerful. A God who stills the seas. And by the way, the fact that he, Yahweh, God Almighty, is the one who stills the seas, should remind you of someone else who stilled the seas. When Jesus stood up and said, peace be still, and the waves stopped, his disciples rightly understood, hang on a second, they knew Psalm, they knew Psalm 65 and other places, no, only God can still the seas. And then they say, what manner of man is this? No way he's just the carpenter's son. He's been sleeping in the back of the boat. So look at the result of this in verse 8. They also which dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. God's displays of power in in nature, in creation, those on the far ends of the earth, we talked about them in in verse uh, verse 5 and mentioned again in verse 2, those people who do not yet know God see displays of God's power. The goal there is to bring them to a place of fearing God. They are afraid, not just, oh man, I'm afraid of the storm, but brought to, a, brought to a place of reverence in God. That idea of fearing God in the Bible is sort of shorthand for having a sort of acknowledgement of who he is, for being in reverence and in a holy fear in his presence. And then verse 8 adds the second line of the, of, the, of the poetry here. Thou makest the outgoings of the morning and the evening to rejoice. Sunrise to sunset. Now we think of sunrise to sunset as time markers. Sunrise, sunset, we think of it as beginning of the day to the end of the day. But in the Hebrew mindset, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. This is a way of saying not only those who are in the uttermost parts of the earth are going to fear God, but from east to west, people will rejoice in you. So notice these, the, the twofold response. They will fear God and they will rejoice in God. Those are sort of the two halves of what a saving relationship with God looks like. It's not just, I'm going to cower in fear before God. And it's not just, I'm going to glibly celebrate God without knowing who he is. The two come together. When you come to faith in Jesus, I recognize God is holy and I am not. And when I realize he has saved me, it brings me to a place of rejoicing in him. What is described in verse 8 is God's power on display is one of the ways that he displays his glory with the goal of bringing people who don't yet know him to salvation, to a place of trusting and treasuring him. Now, the point here is when we stand before the power of God, we realize that the things we think we do, we didn't actually do on our own. Like, I did that. I worked, worked this week, and that's how I provided for myself. Why would I say thank you to God for the meal I just had when I paid for that meal out of money that I earned doing the job that I'm good at? Well, the reality is who gives you the power to get wealth? God does. Who gave you the job? God did. Who gave you the skill and the knowledge necessary to be able to do that? God did? Who made the, you know, the lettuce to grow that's on the sandwich that you're about to eat and the grain to grow that got ground up and turned into to, to bread that you bought at Walmart? Again, God. You see, when we approach God like demanding toddlers who think we can do it all by ourselves, we won't be grateful. Kind of dealing with that you know, right now with Timothy where he He's doing more on his own, and he really wants to be independent. And sometimes there's things that he can't do on his own, but he wants to do on his own. Doesn't really appreciate dad jumping in there, helping him do it. We can be like that so often in our relationship with God. But beloved, when we approach God as beggars, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we come to God recognizing, I'm needy, every supply from him will unleash gratitude. The more we see God's power, and by implication, our weakness, the more we will be grateful as ones who need God. Things that you think that you do on your own. You're like, well, I did that. I worked on that. I I did this. Well, it's true. You're involved there. But ultimately, it is God. It's all God. It's his power empowering us, his wisdom instructing us. Brings us to the... This final section of the Psalm, verses 9 to 13. And here we see God's provision. Final reason we're, we're not thankful, that we don't have gratitude, is we are blind to the true source of the blessings in our lives. We don't see them as blessings, we see them as stuff that we kind of got. Just simple blindness. 
I mean, why bother thanking God for my nice house when I really know and believe deep down that it was my hard work and smart planning that bought it? Why thank God for the recent rain when we really know that rain is the result of complex scientific processes that don't really need God to start with? Verses 9 to 13 gives us a worldview that will not allow for that limited perspective that says, if I can see sort of a, an immediate cause for the blessing, that must be all there is. Verses 9 to 13 is describing the rain that falls that makes the crops grow. Just listen to the beauty of this. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. You go out into your garden with the hose and you water it. The picture there is God's personal involvement with every raindrop. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God. The idea here is thinking of even the clouds like this river from God bringing water and life from him, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast provided for it. You, you throw some, you go out there and start a garden, you throw some seeds into the ground, then something absolutely miraculous happens. That little corn kernel, let me say that right, that's kind of a tongue twister, springs to life, encoded in that is all the instructions necessary to make a corn stalk to grow and for ears of corn to come out on that. From that little tiny seed. You can't do that. That's, that's all God. We, I don't understand it. Verse 10, thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly, thou settlest the furrows thereof. So you think of ridges and furrows within a plowed field. You know, you can plow the field all you want, but if there's no water, nothing's going to grow. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. And by the way, I'll add this. A torrential downpour on an unplowed field won't bring you anything either. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness. So what a picture here is the people come along, they're like, all year long we see God's blessing, but there are certain peculiar times of the year where you're like, I am most, I'm more keenly aware of God's blessing. So in ancient Israel, agricultural society, the, the, when they bring in the harvest, and we are aware of God's provision and his blessing to us. Now, most of us here are not farmers. Some of you have done farming at various points of your life, so you can relate more to this. But for most of us, we're not out in our backyard sort of growing our food so we can eat and keenly aware of the sense of how dependent we are on the rain coming. But let's be honest, if we were, the last couple of months would have been rough. We didn't get much rain in October and into November. We would be on our knees begging God to send the rain. For most of us, if we need something, we just pop over to Walmart or we log on to Amazon to go get it. And so we're not as aware of the fact that everything we have comes as a result of God providing it for us through the rain, through the soil. We think it came from man. Walmart really has their supply chain thing figured out. I mean, that's, okay, this is maybe just me, and maybe I'm weird for thinking this, but I walk, whenever I walk into the produce section of Walmart, I am absolutely blown away with the grace and the generosity of God. You can walk into your Walmart here in Tillman's Corner, Alabama, which is not exactly like a major metropolitan center in the United States, or down on Dawes Road, and there is produce there that has come to you from every corner of the planet. Bananas that, last time I checked, don't grow locally, came on a boat from Honduras, and here they are fresh for you. And here's things that grew in Mexico and avocados from other parts of the world. And it's fresh, and you can buy it, and you can eat it. That is mind-boggling. They said when, uh, when Gorbachev came to the United States and uh, Ronald Reagan took him into a supermarket, he's like, there's no way there's this much stuff for sale. This has got to be sort of a, a propaganda stunt. Uh, we have it so good, the abundance that is there at your local Walmart. You get onto Amazon, you can buy just about anything you want. There it is, boom, two days on your doorstep. And yeah, there's some human ingenuity and wisdom there, but who gave the wisdom? Where did the stuff come from that goes into your iPhone? Your iPhone is basically a, a somewhat complex arrangement of stuff that came out of the dirt. That's all it is, dirt that God created back there on day one of the creation that people with wisdom given to them by God figured out how to extract and organize in such a way that you have a smartphone in your hand. It would be absolute folly to say, well, since, uh, since you know, Apple came up with it, that's not really God. Where do they get the wisdom from? Again, from God. The worldview that we're getting displayed for us in Psalm 65, 9 to 13, is one that says, yeah, you might be able to say, here's how rain falls. There's 
evaporation, and then there's condensation, and there's coalescence, and then, then, then the, the, the cloud condensation nuclei, and then raindrops fall to the earth, and it, there's enough water that it doesn't evaporate on the way down, and that's pretty cool. By the way, if there were, if the, uh, you know, one inch worth of rain over one square mile were to fall on you all at once, it would be something in the order of 1.6 billion pounds of water. If it all fell at once, there would be nothing growing. So we can look at that and be like, well, here's this law, and here's this equation that explains us, and there are laws and equations that you can put to describe what God is doing, but never, ever forget that even though we put a law and an equation on something, God is still the one who is making it happen in everything. Sometimes we get this idea in the universe where we're sort of practically like deists, where we think, oh, God created the world, wound it up, and then it just kind of operates. The gravity always happens, the earth just kind of turns, and every so often God will stick his finger into the pie, we call that a miracle. No, the reality is the earth doesn't spin unless God spins it. The rain doesn't fall unless God sends it. Gravity doesn't pull you down rather than send you away unless God causes it to do that consistently. God is actively involved in every part of his creation. Psalm 65 here is giving us a worldview where there is not a raindrop that falls anywhere on the planet apart from the hand and the mercy of God. We can have this kind of worldview. We would no longer look at the things that are sitting in our refrigerator and just think, oh, yeah, I just bought that. God. It came from God. Even the fact you have a refrigerator. Like, a hundred years ago, nobody had a refrigerator. That's amazing. That's astounding. Now crown us the year with thy goodness, verse 11, thy paths drop fatness. Now here's the idea of God's like, here's this time of year where we're keenly aware of God's blessing upon us. And then the idea here is a wagon path. Here's the wagon sort of bouncing down the field. The wagon is so overfull with fruits and vegetables and all kinds of good things that every time you go over a little bump, blessings are falling out of the wagon. Uh, here's God coming as king. Now, most kings in the ancient world, the king saying, hey, I'm coming to your town, that's not a good thing. Because he's going to come to your town and be like, oh, your cow, we're going to eat that for dinner. Mm, we're going to strip bare your field so I can feast. Most kings in the ancient world show up and they strip the countryside bare. But when Jehovah shows up, he lavishes the countryside with his blessing. They drop upon the pastures. So thinking about rain and the effects of it, they drop upon the pastures of the wilderness. And the little hills rejoice on every side. So both the, the plains and the hills and the mountains enjoy the blessing of God and are rejoicing and celebrating at the presence of God. The pastures are clothed with flocks. So here's the picture. You're looking at the hillside, and there's a herd of sheep on there, and it looks like, man, it's being clothed with the wool of the sheep. Just picturesque, beautiful language. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered over with corn. It's like the, the growth that is springing up as a result of God's blessing is like a, a new suit of clothes on the, the creation around us. They shout for joy. They also sing, anticipating, of course, the day when Jesus comes back and he makes it all right. He takes the curse away from this planet, and the creation is freed from the bondage of corruption. Here's my point here. We are so blind to the mercies and the generosity of God because we have such a limited perspective. So if I can see an immediate cause and effect, that must be all that there is. I go to a job, I get a paycheck. That's how I, that's how, how I survive. The Bible has a perspective that even in that job, God is providing. God is as much providing for you. If you were to say, God, give us this day our daily bread and manna fell from heaven. Okay, that's obviously clearly God. God is as much involved as when you say, God, give us this day our daily bread. And then you go to work and work 40 hours, get a paycheck and go to Walmart. That is as much God as what we might call a miracle. That's the worldview we need to have. That's the worldview, that the belief that will lead to gratitude when you can look at your backyard and be like, God gave that to me. Where you can... Look at a bowl of ramen. Like most of us probably aren't really into ramen too much. Be like, that's a gift from God. I get to eat. Everything we enjoy, grain, food, flocks, meat, milks, dairy, cheese, fruit, is ultimately dependent upon God. And he is immensely generous in sending it to us. You go back to point one, we don't deserve it. And yet God does this not only for us. Like, well, of course God would do this for us because we are his people. Jesus says in Matthew 5, God brings the rain on the just and the unjust, the saved and the lost, people who will never give God a passing thought 
enjoy his rich blessings. People who, in fact, might even hate God, he is so kind as to give them meals and often really good meals. Families, freedom, call it the common grace of God, this this blessing that is distributed to all mankind. Would Would to God that our eyes would be opened to the ways that he provides for us through his pervasive providence over all things. When we attribute the things we have to ourselves, we're, we're like someone attributing a gift to a mythical person when it really came from mom and dad. It's delusional to say, I did that when it's really God who did that. What this is calling us to do is to say, let us see under every gift the giver's hand. Oftentimes we just see the gift and we take the gift, God's provision, family, oh, this is such a good gift, this is great. But under every gift is the giver's hand. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. So what's holding up Thanksgiving gratitude in your life? Maybe, maybe it's an entitlement that has crept into your heart. We've gotten so used to insert, enjoying a certain standard of living or, or God's kindness in our lives that we come to expect it. Well, I've always had three delicious meals every day, so to not have that would be... <sighs> I've always enjoyed God's forgiveness and favor, so of course I sort of deserve it, we begin to think. Maybe there's entitlement, and you need to go to war against that entitlement by reminding yourself, if the greatest of God's gift, pardon, is undeserved... How much more are the lesser gifts undeserved? Or maybe there's some envy or discontent, or you're looking over what your neighbor has or what other people enjoy in their lives. Maybe it's even just a, man, look where that family is at in their, in their life stage. I wish I had what they have, and, and we begin to get discontent rather than thanking God for what he has given. We remind ourselves we don't need anything beyond God for contentment. Or maybe it's that autonomy, that pride that says, I'll do it myself. I don't need to thank anyone because I don't actually need anyone. To say thank you to someone means that I, I needed someone. You be reminded of God's power that humbles us and tells us we can't do anything apart from God. Or maybe it's just the blindness that only looks beyond sort of one level of causation and doesn't see God standing behind it all. You be reminded that it's, it's all from God meal you're going to have today, it's all from God. The car you're going to get into and drive home, and it's all from God. So will you learn to say thank you to God? Maybe renew that gratitude. Maybe you're like, man, I, I had this at one point. When I first became a believer, I was just overwhelmed with it. Man, God forgave me. It's time to go back to that. Maybe there needs to be a commitment to just take the parts of the psalm and work through them this week. Confess places where there's ingratitude in your heart. Saying thank you can be, can be hard, especially for selfish, arrogant sinners like you and me. So may God help us to humble ourselves before him and say thank you.